Welcome to the 53rd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertperlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, we're seeing the number of new cases soar and hospitalizations and deaths rising. Even before the Omicron surge, there are an average 120,000 new cases per day, and approximately 1,300 people succumbing from the infection and its complications. And with Omicron estimated to be at least twice as contagious as Delta, and cases doubling every three to four days, the most difficult times are ahead of us. Recently, Cornell University identified 150 students with COVID-19, and all of them were infected with Omicron. Meanwhile, nearly 40% of Americans aren't yet fully vaccinated. And despite the danger, the number of people who are fully vaccinated is rising at a minuscule rate of about 2% a month, nowhere near what will be needed. And that's not counting the more than 70% of individuals who have yet to receive a booster. Hopefully the number of fully protected Americans will increase in the months ahead. Last week, we passed a distressing milestone with the United States having recorded It's 800,000th death. We're well on our way to a million dead sometime in 2022. The Omicron variant is driving up cases in Europe, and in response, Austria has imposed a major lockdown. And as expected, we've seen cases plummet there. England, France, and Switzerland are trying to follow suit. How aggressive to be with this viral variant? That's becoming increasingly contentious. It's not that we don't know how to slow transmission. It's whether doing so will make enough of a difference to be worth the cost. So far, the data are very positive about how effective the vaccine plus booster combination is at avoiding severe infection against both Delta and Omicron. However, this doesn't mean that hospitals won't get overwhelmed and that deaths won't rise in January. A variant this transmissible, that will negatively impact both hospitalizations and deaths, even if it is not intrinsically more lethal. And the reason is that as the cases soar, the population at risk of becoming very sick rises exponentially. So you can think about it, if the mortality were to drop, let's say 30%, but the cases were twice as many, what we'd be seeing is far more people in the hospital and a growing number of people dying as a result of the infection. Already vaccines have prevented in the United States 
approximately a million deaths. And in the context of Omicron, what we'll see is the number of people whose lives have been saved by this vaccine growing far greater. In response to the higher rates of infection, both the ones from Delta before and soon Omicron, New York City has mandated vaccination for all private sector workers, and they'll require children ages 5 to 11 to show proof of vaccination for indoor dining, entertainment, and to come into other venues. Of course, legal challenges to the vaccine mandate will ensue. The use of booster shots now is possible for 16 and 17 year olds following approval from the FDA to expand emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine for this cohort six months after a second dose. The Pfizer CEO, however, told the media that the vaccine plus booster combination is effective against severe disease from Omicron and that for this reason, a special vaccine based upon the RNA makeup of the variant won't be created or needed at this time. He did point out, however, that two doses alone of the Pfizer vaccine are significantly less effective against Omicron compared to how well they performed against previous strains. Robbie, what do we now know about the risks from Omicron? As we said, Omicron is more transmissible and it's likely that it can better evade the immunity created by previous infection or vaccination than Delta had been. The early data points, as we said, to this variant being somewhat less lethal than Delta, although it's too early to be sure. Most of the research so far has come out of South Africa, which was the world's first major hotspot. The scientists studying the question looked at 78,000 people with Omicron and compared them with 133,000 infections that had been recorded in March of 2021 from previous strains. And what they noted is that hospitalization rates were 29% lower in the patients who had Omicron than they had been in the previous groups. However, since 80% of the population has now been infected through prior disease spread, it's possible that the reduced lethality of the virus could be skewed and mainly reflect increased immunity in the population now versus the past. So far, in younger, healthier people, the ones vaccinated and boosted, the Omicron cases that they have seem to last only about three days, with the most common symptoms being a scratchy throat, nasal congestion, dry cough, and low back pain. But in people who are unvaccinated, severe disease is a common occurrence. Robbie, how is vaccine and booster administration going? As we just discussed, the vaccine rates have been rising very slowly. Although, as the media has highlighted Omicron, we're seeing the pace quicken. Close to a million booster shots are being given each day, in addition to half a million first doses and 300,000 second ones. In total, about 50 million Americans have received a booster. It's interesting, Jeremy, that almost two-thirds of Americans report that they wear a mask in public indoor spaces at all times, and this research was done prior to the Omicron spike. You know, that tells me that there's a split among the vaccinated in their level of fear 
and their degree of risk tolerance. On one hand, there is a large proportion of people who continue to fear becoming sick despite being vaccinated and boosted. And on the other hand, we know that only about a third of people have altered their holiday travel plans as a result of the recent surge in cases and growing prevalence of Omicron. One fact that caught my attention as I read the various surveys is that two thirds of Americans now support airlines requiring proof of vaccination to fly inside the United States. It's already in place for international travel, but two thirds of people are saying that airlines should require people to prove vaccination before boarding a plane. But of course, this is something the airlines continue to refuse to require for obvious economic reasons. Robbie, I know that vaccine mandates remain controversial. What's the latest when it comes to public opinion? Jeremy, as you know, this is one of the most contentious issues relative to COVID-19, with about half of Americans supporting these mandates and half in opposition. Obviously, the unvaccinated would find such a mandate problematic. But what the numbers mean is that there's a large number of individuals who wouldn't personally be impacted who also oppose the approach. And this could be a factor in next year's elections. Let me explain why. If we dive into the data, what we see is that the split in perspective by political affiliation depends on how you ask the question. If you want to know whether employers should mandate vaccines, 54% of people say yes, but it's very broadly split with 78% of Democrats agreeing, but only 30% of Republicans saying that employers should mandate vaccines. But in contrast, if you ask a slightly different question, and that's whether it should be illegal to deny services or employment to people who are not vaccinated. Now the percentages shift. The total number stays about the same, 51% support this, but the split becomes very different. Rather than 78% and 30%, it's now 46 and 55%, a minimal difference between Republicans and Democrats. And although research didn't identify independents who comprise the majority of swing votes across the United States, one could assume that half of them would oppose such an approach, particularly when implemented by the federal government. This reluctance to terminate employment of a vaccine status can be observed in the growing number of employers, including major healthcare systems and hospitals, backing off their plans to impose mandates out of fear of alienating and losing workers. And this includes the Cleveland Clinic, HCA, Intermountain, and Tenet. The courts continue to disagree about the legality of nationally imposed vaccine mandates. Many of the requirements around employers of more than 100 workers and federal contractors were halted by one appeals court. But more recently, a different appeals court has put that mandate back into place, although it's not quite clear when 
it will happen and how it will be enforced. It's most likely that this Biden administration mandate won't happen until after the Supreme Court weighs in. You know, Jeremy, having pointed out the headwinds that this approach encounters, when companies put in place these mandates, what we know is that they do work. They protect employees and they save lives. What we've seen is that United Airlines is now up to 96% vaccinated. Southwest Airlines, 95%. And Lockheed Martin, it's at 95% as well. Europe is taking a much firmer approach than in the United States when it comes to vaccination status. Germany, France, Italy, and Austria all prohibit unvaccinated people from visiting bars, restaurants, sports arenas, and entertainment venues. As Omicron spreads, the restrictions are likely to expand and tighten. Robbie, several listeners wrote to us asking for an update on the effectiveness of the current vaccines against Omicron. What do we know? Jeremy, the data is becoming clearer. It indicates that there is a major drop in antibody effectiveness for people who have had only two shots, but excellent protection after the third, the booster shot. And there's growing evidence that the other parts of our immune system that are generated by the vaccine, what's called the B and T cells, they appear to remain effective against Omicron, although quantifying the exact level of effectiveness is much harder to do for these B and T cells than for antibodies in the blood. Most of the current studies take blood from vaccinated individuals, and they test it against the virus under laboratory conditions. When teams of researchers from South Africa, Sweden, Germany, and Pfizer tested the blood from people who had received two doses of the vaccine, the drop in antibody effectiveness after just two doses, the effectiveness dropped by 25-fold. But then when they looked at individuals who had been boosted, the antibody levels and protection afforded returned to near normal, at least against the previous variants, including the Delta, that were tested in the published research. And it was this research that led Pfizer to continue to recommend boosters of its original vaccine rather than committing to create a new Omicron-specific vaccine. And consistent with these findings, two articles were published in the New England Journal of Medicine that came from Israel, which is the country with the world's best healthcare data on COVID-19. The research was conducted on people with the Delta variant, it was done before Omicron emerged. And in one study of 4 million individuals, researchers demonstrated a 10 to 20-fold lower infection rate in people who had received the booster shot of the Pfizer vaccine compared to those who had had two shots, but not the booster. More specifically, the risk of severe COVID-19 was 17-fold lower in the boosted cohort for people over the age of 60 and 22-fold lower for those 40 to 59 when compared to individuals who had received the first two doses only. In a similar study of 800,000 individuals who are 50 and older, those who had received the booster experienced a 90% reduction in mortality compared with those who only had had the first two shots. 
Given this definitive research on the benefit of boosters, it's disturbing that only about half of nursing home residents in the US have received the third shot. You know, this population represents the one with the highest mortality. Nursing home residents comprise about 2% of people in the United States, but they account for a third of the deaths. The failure to vaccinate is even more disappointing given that the nursing home residents spend all their days in one location. The shots can be easily administered and with Omicron out's way, this is particularly worrisome. Two other statistics from the data set prove even more problematic. The first is that people of color in nursing homes have a lower rate of being given the booster than whites. And this is likely to magnify the gap in mortality rates we saw early in the pandemic. And individuals in nursing homes who receive the less effective J&J vaccine. These are the ones who really need to have a booster with an mRNA vaccine. They actually have lower rates of receiving an additional shot than the individuals who got the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. They should have been at the head of the line, but they weren't. Let me ask you, Jeremy. It seems as though people in nursing homes aren't receiving the attention that they deserve given the risks they face. As a social scientist and political observer, why do you think that is? And what do you believe our nation should do about it? Ravi, I find the topic of people in nursing homes one that's very hard to grapple with. I do think they should all be encouraged to get their boosters. And on one hand, they are the most at-risk part of the population when it comes to COVID-19, but they're also nearing the end of their life and are probably especially prone to loneliness and depression around the holidays. I have to wonder if a survey was done among seniors in nursing homes and if they were asked if they would rather be able to have time with their family uh, and be able to visit and interact with them and risk exposure to COVID-19 or be kept more isolated and safer from COVID, uh, what their answer would be. I have to imagine, especially knowing that they may not have much time left anyway, that they would want to spend as much of it with family as possible. Now, I have to wonder as well, if their family would be given that same survey, would they rather avoid their parents or grandparents in a nursing home to help prevent exposing them to COVID-19, or would they rather spend time with them in person? Should more be done to protect seniors in nursing homes as COVID surges in many places? Absolutely. Should they be encouraged to get the boosters? Absolutely. The question is, if as a recent Pfizer press release said, they expect the pandemic to last into 2024, what is the best way to protect seniors without having a huge negative impact on their mental health during the twilight of their life? Now, Robbie, as you know, I've been against vaccine mandates, um, but when it comes to the nation's most vulnerable, which is seniors in nursing homes and the amount of other at-risk seniors they're being exposed to, I think this is a special circumstance where you know, maybe a mandate would be needed. Robbie, you wrote an interesting article about the psychological challenges of COVID-19 in the third year of the pandemic. Can you update listeners on what you said? Jeremy, when it comes to the impact of pain and discomfort on people, there are two factors. There's the magnitude, but there's also the duration. You know, a heart attack is often described as crushing chest pain. And then when a blood vessel breaks in your head, the doctors... Listen for a patient saying, this is the worst headache of my life. But there's also chronic pain. 
If it were to last six weeks or maybe even six months, it could be tolerable. But after a couple of years, it interviewed, it interferes with people in increasingly problematic ways. And that's how I describe COVID in year three. It's becoming an erosive chronic disease. My observation is that people are tired of the continuing restrictions, the increasingly poor service provided by businesses that are understaffed, and the reality that COVID-19 isn't disappearing anytime soon, and it will become worse in the context of Omicron. Putting the pieces together, painful emotions, disappointments, frustrations, anxiety, fatigue, they are inevitable in year three. Of course, the COVID-19 issues are intertwined with the economic and employment challenges our nation faces. And these are ones that are growing continually. In a recent study, almost half of unemployed Americans reported that health issues were the primary reason they weren't working. And that implies that poor service is more likely to deteriorate rather than ameliorate. You know, I can't remember the last time I called with a question for business and I wasn't placed on hold and told that the company was experiencing higher than usual call volumes. And mental health problems, according to the McKinsey American Opportunity Survey, they've reached epidemic proportions. 37% of people have either been diagnosed with mental health issues or at least they're seeking treatment. In the article I wrote, I highlighted a survey in which 41% of Americans say they experience anxiety and or depression at least half of the days each month. And when I look at the emotional and psychological difficulties generated, we need a national plan to address them as much as we require a concerted approach to the physical health challenges that COVID produces. When one examines the unemployment data, at first glance, the numbers seem contradictory. You know, the number of American jobs is 9 million fewer now than pre-pandemic. The unemployment rate, however, is extremely low. Similarly, only 59.2% of Americans are employed currently. And that's down from 61.1% pre-pandemic and 64.7% two decades ago, the year 2000. And yet there's an all-time high of more than 11 million job openings. A worker shortage in the context of so many jobs going unfilled means that millions of Americans aren't looking for work and that health issues overall and COVID specifically are major reasons. Assuming the analysis is correct, we can predict that the problem will worsen in the future, not improve, and that it will be resistant to the traditional economic approaches, such as lowering interest rates that in the past and in normal circumstances spur job creation. We're seeing this play out as Broadway shows cancel performances. We've already seen Harry Potter production, the musical Tina Turner, Hamilton, Mrs. Doubtfire, all have to cancel shows at the last minute 
because cast members had COVID. The Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall have canceled their whole season. Apple stores have closed in Miami, Ottawa, and Annapolis. And sports teams, and I know you're a big sports fan, you know, superstars like the two-time Milwaukee Buck MVP, Giannis Adenkumpo, and the Cleveland Browns' Baker Mayfield have been sidelined. And as you know, Jeremy, this weekend, three games were postponed, including your team, Minnesota. And 140 NHL players have had to be benched due to COVID. We are in an ongoing and likely to become worse pandemic. In the article, I encourage the individuals with mental health difficulties to seek assistance to get the therapy they need and deserve. And I also warned others, people like myself, who feel as though we're coping well, that we need to be aware of the impact that COVID-19 will have in the third year on our emotional well-being, even if we're unaware it is happening. Robbie, early on vaccine mandates were upheld by the court and more recently they were pulled on hold. What's the current status and what's going on? Jeremy, I'm not a legal expert, but as I said earlier, it appears that this whole issue is headed to the Supreme Court for resolution. The early decisions supporting the mandates, they were based on the premise that protecting the health of all workers was a federal responsibility. And the subsequent negative ones viewed the issue as either being beyond the scope of agencies like OSHA or reflecting fear that this type of requirement would negatively affect the ability of businesses to operate. But the most recent decision, the one reinstituting the mandate for businesses with more than 100 employees, it concluded that it is OSHA's responsibility to keep employees safe and that this is an approach to do just that. You know, Jeremy, this whole issue has become absurd in terms of our inability to have a single national approach. Last week, the fifth US Circuit Court of Appeals issued an order allowing implementation of the Biden administration's mandates for healthcare workers. But because other courts of appeal had ruled this mandate not to apply in their jurisdiction, our nation now has 24 states in which it's illegal and 26 in which it is the law. You know, Jeremy, this virus, whether we're talking the Delta or Omicron, it's the same virus everywhere. The virus doesn't care about state boundaries. The hospital bed critical care shortages exist throughout the United States. The protection offered by the vaccines for people are identical everywhere. And yet the ability of the federal government to enforce a public health measure is deemed legal in some geographies, it's prohibited in others, it makes no medical or economic sense. The Biden administration has asked the Supreme Court to take up the issue and hopefully it will do so early in 2022. It's unclear, however, how the more conservative makeup of the Supreme Court will impact this controversial issue. What we know is that recently, the court refused to block a New York 
vaccine mandate for healthcare workers in the state, even though the mandate did not include a religious exemption. As such, I'm guessing that the court will uphold these mandates, but three of the high court's most conservative justices, Alioto, Thomas, and Gorsuch, they voiced dissent to the ruling. And so there's no way to be sure until the court issues its conclusions what will come out in response to the mandates that are being pushed at the national level and resisted by many in the United States. Robbie, our good news segment is something valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? The best news came from Pfizer. The company confirmed that its new oral antiviral pill worked to reduce the risk of hospitalization or death for individuals at high risk by nearly 90%. The data was part of its request for the FDA to issue an emergency use authorization, a request that's likely to be approved potentially later this month or in the next. Remember from the last episode of Coronavirus The Truth that an FDA committee had already recommended approval for a different antiviral pill, the one manufactured by Merck, that in the final analysis was only 30% effective. What Pfizer, as I said, has shown is that it's 90% effective, their pill, for those individuals at high risk, and 70% effective in individuals at avoiding severe illness in people at normal risk. Although these results are positive, listeners should be aware that taking a pill once infected is not an alternative to vaccination. You know, the best news segment we could report would be if all eligible Americans now were vaccinated and boosted. With Omicron spreading rapidly across the United States, full immunity would not only be life-saving, but allow many of the restrictions being put into place not to be required. But alas, at least as of today, that's not the case. Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's this week's big healthcare story? The biggest story was that U.S. spending on healthcare increased by 9.7% in 2020, in a year that overall GDP declined by 2%. As a result, our nation is now spending on healthcare 19.7% of all of the dollars that are spent, or very close to 20% of our gross domestic product. And according to the most recent Commonwealth Fund report, our nation remains last in healthcare outcomes amongst the 12 most industrialized nations with the lowest longevity, the worst rates of childhood and maternal mortality, and the highest number of preventable deaths. Of course, some of this higher spending reflected COVID-19 and the added governmental funding of programs to control viral spread and alleviate the pandemic's economic damage. But at the same time, healthcare wage inflation hasn't yet peaked across the industry since many of the employers are paid on a contractual basis and that has yet to be renegotiated in the context of rising inflation rates overall. And we know this pent up demand for expensive procedures like total hip replacements 
that had to be postponed this year and last. So far, Congress seems unwilling to take the actions needed to control costs. You know, we saw Congress fail to pass legislation, effective legislation, to rein in drug costs to any significant degree. And most recently, the House of Representatives voted to eliminate billions of dollars in cost savings scheduled to take effect through Medicare. And this happened following massive lobbying from hospitals and doctors. This is the classic unstoppable force hitting an immovable object. Elected officials and business leaders say that the rate of healthcare inflation is unsustainable, that it's capable of eroding our nation's global competitiveness and bankrupting families. And yet when the time comes to vote on our bill, they back off from driving the changes needed to alter the slope of healthcare inflation. I predict the problem will get worse before we finally take action to make it better. Jeremy, our nation faces a myriad of challenges. There's inflation, there's increasing danger from COVID. There are business challenges and educational difficulties. Which of these four do you view as the most problematic and how would you approach the issues underlying this particular problem in the future? Rabbi, you're giving me a very difficult question to answer today. Um, I do not know if I can really isolate one as more problematic than the others. Uh, whenever I think about all of the challenges we're currently facing and how bleak and hopeless it seems, and I talk to my dad about it, he reminds me that when his mother was nearing the end of her life almost a decade ago, that she would watch cable news on TV constantly and convinced that the nation was collapsing and it was the worst state the nation was ever been in and how could things ever get any worse than this? And this was a woman that lived through both the Great Depression and World War II. Both of those events were much worse than anything the nation faced in the years before she passed away. Uh, things have been worse for this nation than they are now, and we've recovered from that, and that's something important to remember. That being said, children falling behind in both educational and social development is terrifying. The current inflation we're seeing is scary, too. The cost of gas, groceries, and everything is skyrocketing at a level not seen in over 40 years with no end in sight. Uh, COVID is surging again, and hospitals are filling up again. Uh, the challenge you mentioned, though, that terrifies me the most are the business ones. Since the pandemic has started, so many small to mid-sized businesses have failed. In fact, last week, a popular downtown restaurant that's been there for ages where I live announced that they could no longer afford to stay open. Uh, small town local businesses and restaurants go under. Mega corporations like Amazon and Walmart thrive. What we're witnessing is the greatest transfer of wealth from the poor and middle class to the ultra wealthy in human history. This is terrifying and has scary long-term implications. Many small towns are hanging on by a thread anyway, and will this be the death knell of the local economy of many of these small towns? After the pandemic is over, how much of the lowered upper middle class will have been completely wiped out? How much will this hurt innovation and economic mobility in our nation? How many small to mid-sized businesses will be gone never to return? This is what scares me the most about the pandemic. Robbie, Boris Johnson, when talking about Omicron, said the idea that this is somehow a milder version of the virus, that is something we have to set aside. And yet you said earlier in the show, compared to Delta, it most likely was less lethal. Who is right? Jeremy, I love this question because it shows the challenges of statistics. On one hand, it is likely that once infected, a person will have a slightly reduced chance of dying from Omicron 
that had that same individual been infected with Delta. But given how transmissible the new variant is, the number of people who will be infected will rise dramatically and the total death rate will increase. As such, both viewpoints are likely to be true rather than being in conflict. But this question raises a bigger point, and that is the media's desire to oversimplify what are complex issues. When it comes to Omicron, we need to understand both transmissibility and individual lethality. And by that, I mean based on age, prior infection, vaccination immunity, and booster status. For the past 18 months, a theme we have repeated again and again on Coronavirus The Truth is that one size can't fit all. And yet as a nation, we continue to fail to learn this lesson. As you know, I teach strategy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I point out that strategy is about maximizing the probability of success. Place a bet on an approach with an 80% chance of working and one in five times it will fail but put it on one with only a 40% likelihood of working and the failure rate rises to 60%. What is needed in nursing homes will be different than elementary schools. What's required for someone who's immunocompromised will be different than for a person in great health. COVID-19 has pointed out the flaws in our healthcare system, but it's also highlighted the failures of American society, the shortcomings of the media, and the difficulties of the political system overall. Until we take a more surgical approach to this pandemic, I predict the virus will continue to run wild and inflict devastation on our nation. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.